And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. Damon Hill recovered from getting trounced by Michael Schumacher in 1995 to win the world title the following season, but before he'd wrapped things up, he had to deal with the shock news that he was being dropped by Williams for the following season, even if he won the title. To make matters worse, the story was broken in the media weeks before Frank Williams confirmed to Hill that Heinz Held Frentzen was replacing him for 1997, and while trying to focus on winning the title, Hill was left scrambling to grab one of the few remaining seats on the grid, eventually ending up taking the number one to Arrows. I'm Glenn Freeman and we're kicking off this new series of Bring Back V10s with a monster of an episode as we'll get into what was going on at the time, tracing the chain of events as they played out in public and what was going on behind the scenes with the help of a few insiders as well. Joining me to kick off Series 7 are Karun Chandok and Ed Straw. And Karun, let's just get straight into it. Great to have you with us for the start of a new series. So you can have the first opening question of Series 7. When you think of Damon Hill being dropped by Williams at the end of 1996, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Complete shock. I mean, what are they doing? Dropping the leader of the world championship? This makes no sense. Followed quickly by, oh, hang on a second. This is the third (laughs) potential Williams world champion to be leaving uh, in the space of uh, five years. Yeah, Williams had a bit of a track record for that at the time. Uh, Ed, like Karun, you were keen to put yourself forward for this one. Frankly, you're keen to put yourself forward for all of them, which we appreciate. What's your standout memory of this saga? Well, I think the fact you use the word saga explains why I can't actually think of a specific standout memory. There was no moment where kind of this hit me like a ton of bricks, which surprised me, actually, because I was a Damon Hill fan at the time. Maybe I've forgotten it. But I do remember, somewhat tangentially, but it, it kind of captures the spirit at the time, being at the British Grand Prix the following year. So that's after Hill had, had left. As you do as a fan, was hanging around by the paddock. They used to have like an autograph kind of hole in the fence where drivers and people would come up to. And there's a point where obviously various stars came past. And at one point, Frank Williams kind of went past and he, he ended up getting a bit of booing for having uh, dropped Damon Hill. In retrospect, desperately uncalled for and rather pantomime. But as a 17-year-old Damon Hill fan, I had a slightly warped perspective at the time. So that perhaps catches the spirit of, of the whole saga, even if it's not specifically the moment he was dropped, which... I can't remember, even though, obviously, I was paying close attention. Well, you claim you were paying close attention. Once again in this series, we'll be hearing the memories from our audience as well. So keep an eye on my Twitter account, at Freeman 39 where I'll, I'll ask for your memories whenever we're coming up to recording an episode. For this one, we had over 100 replies, which is incredible. So here's a few of them. Mark Hewitt says, after being a huge fan of Williams, I pretty much hated them after that decision. I never forgave Frank Williams for not allowing Hill to defend his title. And to some extent, I still haven't. Dale Webb said he also never forgave Williams and points out this was the start of the team's downfall. 
Paul Stubbs says, I was gutted at how much Damon had been screwed over. And as his world champion, he wouldn't have a fair chance to defend his title. A few people, uh, talking about 1997, as Ed did, a few people agreed with Chris that the standout memory from Hill getting dropped was his performance in the Arrows in Hungary the following year. Uh, we also had that one from Timo De Hoop, Sean Hollenby and Joey Strange. Stephen Gate says Autosport breaking the story before the German Grand Prix. We'll get into that in a lot of detail. Our Jeff says six-year-old me thinking the number one would somehow make the Arrows go faster. And uh, lots of you mentioned that this was the final straw that pushed Adrian Newey out of Williams. We had that from Joshua Geek, uh, Brendan, Nick Adcock and Wes Hellyar. We were going to include a bit of Newey uh, stuff at the end of this episode, but the script got so long, we'll save it for another time. Thank you, as always, to everyone who leaves us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and those of you who get in touch saying you listen on a different platform but would love to give us five stars. So some quick thank yous to DizzleCat100, The Murray One, Sagers, and uh, Andretti78 for your reviews. I do read them all and we really appreciate it. A new series means we're also taking your questions again on anything to do with F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. We'll answer as many as we can at the end of the series. So submit your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. For those of you who didn't get any of our merchandise as a present over the festive period, firstly, what on earth were your friends and family playing out? But you can put that right by heading over to shop.the-race.com to check out the full range of Bring Back V10s, clothing and products we have available. And lastly, if you want to get early access to new episodes and listen to them ad-free, check out the Race Members Club. You'll also get bonus episodes from time to time. Uh, before this series, we did a special episode taking questions from our members, and we also debated the best cars of the era that didn't win a championship I think there'll be a companion episode to this episode as well, as some of the interviews we conducted are well worth hearing in full. So keep an eye out for that. Let's crack on, though. As I said, this is a long script. We've got lots to get through. Speculation over Hill's future really increased at the British Grand Prix, of all places, in 1996, with rumours circulating that Hill wanted a big pay increase for 1997. Frank Williams did his best not to comment too much, although... On the stories of Hill's demands, he said he'd seen them and had thrown those press cuttings in the bin. Frank added, I'm sure Damon and I will sit down in due course and talk through a variety of issues in a proper way. I can make no comment on whether he will be with us next year. I simply don't know. Later in this episode, we'll dip into Hill's brilliant autobiography. But he also released a book about his 1996 season after he won the championship. And in that, he went into good detail about what was going on behind the scenes during this period. Hill said that he made an effort over the Silverstone weekend to make it very clear he had nothing to do with the rumours that were in the papers. He added, I told Frank that I wanted to drive for Williams next year and that I wasn't talking to or interested in anyone or anything else. He said Frank reassured him that he had no interest in what the media was saying, but Hill wrote, I know from my own experience that you don't actually have to read the papers to know what's in them. Karun, looking at the Silverstone speculation in isolation, did you think it was odd that Williams were being so non-committal about the driver that was leading the world championship? You know, this is way past in, in 96. This was past halfway in the season. And Frank Williams is saying, I don't know. I honestly can't tell you. It is very odd, isn't it? I mean, especially when we look at it in the modern context, you know, we look at 
drivers who are staying with teams for a long time, Lewis and Verstappen and Schumacher, Ferrari, things like that. But actually, when you go back to that era, you know, that decade between 87 and 96, the year we're talking about, on six out of the 10 occasions, the world champion didn't drive for the same team the following year, <laughs> which is quite mad, actually, when you think of it um, in, in the modern context, isn't it? But, you know, that was really an era where we had these big heavyweight names, moving teams and some, you know, uh, the, the team bosses as well, making some big power plays as well in terms of um, shifting drivers around. So I guess in, it, it should have been less shocking, but... You know, at that stage, as you said, Damon had been on a roll, right? The the um, the, the FW18 that he started that season was a was a fantastic car. It suited him superbly. And uh, okay, he had a couple of races like Monza late in the year or Estoril, where he should have won but didn't. But really, up until that point at the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, he was on great form. The the increasing speculation at this time, took Hill's mind back to late 1995 when he'd first heard rumours that he could be losing his drive to Frentzen. Damon had a contract for 1996 by then, but it was a one-year extension he'd only just got his hands on, which perhaps hints at what Kareem said, that it seemed everyone was on shorter contracts back then. But Damon admitted in this first book we're talking about in 96 that those rumours back in 95 had concerned him he said he was upset that Williams didn't deny those rumours publicly at the time and that the team didn't say anything to defend me or my position. After the Pacific Grand Prix in 95, where Michael Schumacher sealed his second world championship, Hill went to Williams technical boss Patrick Head and asked him outright if Frentzen had been signed. Head said Williams hadn't signed Frentzen, but Damon said he had an uncomfortable feeling about Patrick's response. And perhaps he was right to, because Adrian Newey said in his book that when he finally asked Patrick Head about the rumours of Frentzen replacing Hill, and this was much later in the summer of 96 before it was official, Head told him, at the start of the year, Frank and I decided to sign Frentzen for 1997 because Damon drove so badly in 1995. We'll get into the specifics of what might have been signed a bit later. But Ed, looking at where Hill was at the end of 95. We've covered that in previous episodes. Was it a fair reaction from Williams to decide that far in advance that Hill needed to be replaced for 97? I think they were right to have reservations, as I think even Damon himself would accept that 1995 wasn't always the greatest showcase of his abilities. That said, he did put in some very good drives in that season as well, and he was really the only person who could take the fight to Michael Schumacher on occasion. So it wasn't exactly a, a disaster. But Williams was in a strange position because the lineup had effectively been forced on it by the loss of Ayrton Senna in 94 with Hill and David Coulthard. So I don't blame them for looking around. They were right to be thinking, is there an upgrade? out there because Hill hadn't in 95 had a perfect season by any stretch of the imagination. Although I do think the team probably used the driver as a bit of a lightning rod for hiding its own weaknesses as well. Because although Hill had a few mistakes that season, there were also strategic blunders, reliability problems. The team didn't always cover itself in glory as well. And I think that's part of the Williams psyche. There was a little bit of a feeling of we're great. And if it doesn't happen, it's because of the drivers. So yeah, I understand why they were certainly getting to the point where they said, right, we might need to replace Hill. They should certainly have been looking around for the next big thing. But certainly the way they did it, and I think 
the fact they'd almost taught themselves into it by the end of 95, but then not really communicated well with Hill and kind of dithered about it, as has happened in the past, in fact, with Williams, uh, with drivers, as we've talked about before, I don't think reflects very well on them. But fundamentally, I don't think at the end of 95, anyone would say that Williams shouldn't at least be considering if there was a better alternative out there. You cannot blame them for that. So let's get into where this all blew up then. And that's at the 1996 German Grand Prix. Autosports' Andrew Benson broke the story in that week's magazine, citing a top-level source in Formula One claiming that Frentzen had been signed and Hill was out of a drive for 97. There's a lot to get into here, so let's start with the basic story that kicked it all off. Frank Williams responded to the story simply by saying it's news to me, and he added that Jacques Villeneuve was the only driver with a Williams contract for 1997. In public, Hill said, I'm not going to be drawn into any discussion about conjecture over my future because at the moment it is of no consequence. You will be informed as soon as there is any news, but right now there is none. Frentzen said he did not want to stir things up, but he added that he would like to drive for Williams and he said, I have not signed a contract with Williams, but nothing is impossible. Before we hear from Ed and Karun on this, let's get the perspective of the person in charge of Williams's PR back then, and Bradshaw. So this is what Anne told us about what was going on behind the scenes when Autosport broke the story about Hill being out. I mean, the rumblings had been going on about that that, that Frank had signed Heinz Harold Frenzen. I mean, that had been going on for a long time because Frank Frank just you know would would never deny or confirm you know. But um, it, it was it was not something that, that suddenly oh yeah that's a surprise it is it it's been rumbling on a long time and frank wasn't wasn't the sort of person who was going to call me in and say now I'll, I'll tell you exactly what's happening and where we are and he's not that sort of person um so i wasn't you know i wasn't privileged enough to know what was going on autosport was out on a thursday but if you went to waterloo on a wednesday night you could buy it we'd send people out to say, oh, can you go and get in and read it and tell us what's in there? Because it it was it was what you how you found out the news or, or you found out what they were saying about you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if it, it would we'd have known. I mean, I, whether there was a physical copy there or somebody had read it, Frank was never going to get terribly upset or flustered and um, or want to you know sort of comment or anything. I mean, he just shrugs it shrugs it off. There's him and Patrick, you know, had had a healthy disregard for what was it in the press because you know it, it wasn't going to influence them. You know, when I see people today sort of turning around and, and issuing denials that somebody's going to be sacked or this sort of thing, Frank would never have done that. Never say, "Oh, and deny that," or "I want to tell them that it's wrong." It's yeah. You know, so what? You know, it's 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 it it, it wasn't something that that was going to upset him. Fascinating behind-the-curtain peek there with Anne. Uh, Williams eventually released a statement over the German Grand Prix weekend as the speculation just wouldn't go away. Uh, But the team said very little. It talked about the focus on the championship, said Villeneuve was the only confirmed driver for 97, and negotiations regarding the team's other driver for 1997 will commence in good time. Karidi hinted at this at the start of the show. When this rumour broke, did you believe it? Not really, if I'm honest, because um, you just, you just, it just didn't make sense. 
you know, I, I get Damon had had a terrible 95. Um, but if you look at the beginning of, of 96, he was on a tremendous run. You know, he'd won um, in the opening part of that year. He'd won six races in the first nine and probably should have won Monaco as well. So, you know, he was on a, a great run of form. And you just go, oh, like, why would you get rid of him? If, if anything, you should, like, you should get rid of the other guy who's not winning, <laughs> who's only won uh, one out of these races. Absolutely not. Uh, sorry, Glenn. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's it still was, was very confusing. But I guess, you know, at the time, listen, I was I was 12 years old and, and the concept of people's contracts being signed, um, you know, a year in advance of, of the following season. Um, it's not a bit something that you think about, right? You know, a bit like, Ed, you're, you're a fan watching the sport and you just, you're looking at it from a very um, naive and, and pure set of eyes. Now, Hill admitted in his 1996 book that when he saw the stories over the German Grand Prix weekend, he started to believe there might be something to it. Uh, I have such sympathy for how out of the loop Damon was on this. Uh, he talked about it in more depth in his proper autobiography, Watching the Wheels. He described it as a little upsetting to read that he was getting kicked out of the team. And his initial reaction was that it was a journalist, in this case, Andrew Benson, who is now at the BBC, attempting to whip up a story because there was not much else going on. None of us have ever done that. Uh, Hill said he confronted Andrew and in Damon's words, tore a strip off him. He accused Andrew of being incredibly unpatriotic and trying to pull the rug from under me, a fellow Brit, just as I was heading towards a world championship. Damon went on to admit that, of course, a journalist is obliged to chase any story that comes his way, and he turned out to be right on the money. So now let's hear from the man himself, not Damon, but Andrew Benson, who gave us some insight on what it was like breaking the story and the fallout that followed. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show. Quite simply, to begin with, how did you get this story? Well, obviously, I'm not going to tell you where it came from, but um, it was it, I, I got it over the British Grand Prix weekend, and um, I was actually digging around on another story, and somebody said, "Well, you know, did you know about this?" and um, I didn't. <laughs> so um, they said, look, just wait a week before you run it. They didn't say why. Um, and I didn't ask why. But obviously, the person in question was a very serious person and was absolutely adamant that it was true. And so that was too, it was too big a story from too big a person who definitely could and perhaps would have known, um, I couldn't ignore it. And I spent the next week sort of phoning around and doing as much research, background, could this be true, um, et cetera, as I possibly could. And at no point did it sound like it wasn't or couldn't be true. And so... Uh, I rang Frank Williams, um, who kind of denied it, kind of didn't. And uh, we, yeah, we went for it. Damon's been very honest that he didn't take the story well and that he perhaps took it out on you. So we're referencing in the episode 
Damon's version of that story. What's your version? What do you remember of apparently having a strip torn off of you? <laughs> well, it was a it was an interesting day because obviously it had been quite the the week leading up to deciding to publish the story was was quite tense um, and quite intense. Um, when I got to um, Hockenheim, I decided that it probably wasn't. I thought I was, I'm definitely going to go and see Damon and tell him why I ran the story or we ran the story. So um, I thought I'll go and see Damon, but I'll I'll um, I'll wait until the end of the day. I didn't think going in to his media session on the Thursday with all the nationals, for example, was a particularly smart idea. So I, I waited till the end of the day and walked into the back then. Uh, they didn't have the fancy motorhomes that they have now. They have they, they had like a bus that was done up inside and a, and a, and a three meter awning on the side of it under which the ta- there were a few tables. And he was sitting in there uh, with Michael Breen, his manager, and a couple of other people. And I, I must have taken no more than one step inside the awning. And he just said, get out, Andrew. You've made yourself look very stupid. So I thought, okay, well, <laughs> that's the end of that conversation then. <laughs> and um, yeah, the rest of the weekend obviously was dominated, or at least the first couple of days was dominated by that story. And, you know, it came up in press conferences and everyone was talking about it. And some people were supportive and some people were less supportive. Um, in Formula 1, there's a lot of people who assume that they know stuff you know, so there was a lot of oh, that can't be true. Why would it, why would Williams do that when he's doing so well this year? And um, and I spent a couple of weeks, you know, sweating it a bit, you know, facing this. And then I happened to do an interview with somebody else who definitely would have known. We did the interview and then we started chatting and uh, he said, you know, how are you doing? And I said, well, you know, it's obviously been a nervous couple of weeks and with the, you know, with the Damon thing. And this person said, well, you might find you've got nothing to worry about. And I just thought, thank you. <laughs> so that that was that was quite a big moment. How did you feel once it's definitely there in in, in black and white on a press release and, and the world knows it's official? Is, is What's the feeling then? for you, given the, the weeks of, as you said, stress you've been through up to that point? Well, so I went, there was, I guess there was a series of phases. Obviously, I was always, I was always pretty confident. Otherwise, the story would never have made it to the front cover of Autosport in the first place. And then, when, and then when it was finally announced, I guess you just think it's a combination of relief and satisfaction, obviously. Um, but I didn't realise at the time just quite how much it would resonate and for how long, you know? Um, but I mean, the funny thing about it was that um, the rest of the year, Damon kind of, he went on to win the championship and we didn't really have a chance to talk for, at all really after that, other than sort of in official forums. So there was never a chance to talk about it in in, in person, privately, you know? And then at, at the beginning of the next year, um, uh, Matt Bishop, who'd taken over as um, editor of F1 Racing by then, he came to me and said, "Oh, we've got a column with Damon in the in the year in the magazine this year, and he wants you to write it." And I thought, "Why on earth does Damon want me to do that after everything that happened?" And um, I didn't, and I never actually asked him that to his face during that year. 
but so we did the column for a while and then one day in the paddock i was chatting to a guy called john nicholson who was a photographer who's a long time friend of uh, damon's and i i said this to john you know i didn't understand why damon wanted me to write the column and john said yeah that's that's damon's way of saying sorry ed we're used to being on Andrew's side of the fence here, but can we forgive Damon for effectively shooting the messenger in this case? Well, he was wrong to do so, clearly, but you can completely understand why it happened. In fact, I remember some years ago being at Silverstone head of the British Grand Prix and Damon Hill was talking about this situation. I can't remember how it uh, got onto that particular topic, but he did explain the headspace he was in. And in fact, it ties back to that, that quote uh, you mentioned earlier about seeming un- incredibly unpatriotic because he felt that as a British driver leading the world championship, the British press should be there to support him and not destabilise him as he saw it, almost regardless of whether there was any truth to it. And I've always actually remembered that because it's quite an important lesson in perspective in terms of how a driver might see things very differently from the way a journalist will. You know, if you're a journalist, the news is the news, isn't it? If you find something out like that, you report it. That is the job. And what Andrew Benson did was a superb job. He was absolutely on the money. But it's interesting to understand that that kind of headspace and why it triggered that sort of reaction. But certainly, clearly, the fault lay with, ultimately, I think, Williams and the way they'd handled it. Because regardless of what you think about the decision, I don't think anyone would say the way that it was it was dealt with and the way it was communicated was remotely correct. Listen, I mean, we're 26 years later, we're still talking about that. And, and uh, to give Andrew his credit, that's got to be one of the best scoops, isn't it, in terms of driver announcement. I mean, you know, people talked about the Eddie Jordan um, revealing that Lewis was leaving McLaren for Mercedes. But it was in a year where he wasn't, you know, leading the world championship. This is the dominant runaway leader of the world championship being announced that he's off. And um, fair play to Andrew, because I, I also think there were people even within the media at the time who were really questioning him. You know, people, I seem to recall there was a story about Simon Taylor, who was the, the commentator, I think, for BBC Radio 2, um, who had an involvement at Haymarket. I don't know, was he the, Ed, you might remember this, was he the chairman or he, he was... Certainly had a senior role at Haymarket, who owned Autosport at the time, uh, who, who even publicly came out and said, you know, that um, he thought his his reporter was being naive and a bit premature with this with this sort of um, angle on things, which turned out to be untrue, of course, because Andrew Benson was was absolutely right and, and vindicated. Um, I think what's interesting is what, while researching for this podcast, I came across an article. In, which was done in 2008, which is the first time that Andrew and Damon have spoken about this. It's in Motorsport Magazine. It's a fascinating insight where they've sort of, you know, they've had this phase where they had this fallout and then they carried on, you know, rebuilding a relationship and working professionally, but almost ignoring the elephant in the room. And then there's this article, which is still on the internet, and I, I read it this morning uh, from 2008, where, where they talk about that period. Um, and on reflection, you know, Damon's almost apologetic because he, to use your quote, he did say that he, sh- he shot the messenger when he really shouldn't have. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Now, the saga rumbled on through the summer, still with no public confirmation from anyone involved. And Hill said that by the Belgian Grand Prix at the end of August, he knew he was a dead man walking. And it was the Wednesday after Spa, August the 28th, that Frank Williams called him to finally tell him the news. Damon said in his 1996 book, quite simply, Frank said, Damon, we won't be asking you to drive for us next year. It's not about money. I can't tell you much more, but I have to think about the future of the company and I am not going to change my mind. Hill said, I felt the bottom had dropped out of my world. All the euphoria of being in the lead of the championship, the thrill of race wins suddenly seemed for nothing. During the short call, I asked Frank when he had made the decision. He said an hour ago, but I had strong doubts about the truth of that. And in Damon's later autobiography, he called this unceremonious and humiliating. So let's focus on that, Karun. Would you agree that in, in terms of how Williams dis disposed of Damon here, was it unceremonious and humiliating? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good summary, really, isn't it? I, I think, and you know what, there's so many, there's so many layers, right, to this. And as you said, you know, this is a script that, that keeps on giving, really. Um, you know, just last week I was talking, I was wandering around the, the Williams Museum and talking to, to somebody there looking around and I go actually in so many ways this the slump of Williams began with that decision because you know Adrian knew he left because he felt he was being undermined and you know wanted to be involved in driver decisions he was left out of this particular one and, and used that as a catalyst to say I've had enough and he left Williams and actually Williams never won a world championship again so, until they were you know even now they've ultimately been sold so um it's in many ways, actually, this decision has had such a huge impact on one of Formula One's greatest teams. Yeah, this was strike three for Newey. Uh, strike one was the Mansell saga. He didn't like how that was handled. Strike two uh, was that they agreed. I think they agreed to sign Villeneuve while Newey was on holiday, even though his contract said he should be involved in that sort of thing. Um, this was this was the, the the final straw for him, and he got out of the team on breach of contract, basically, because he said, I'm supposed to be involved in these decisions and you keep leaving me out. So, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, Corinne. This, as some of our listeners said, this is the moment you can pinpoint and go, that is the decision uh, that Williams made that began the decline. Yes, you know, knew he had basically finished the 97 car and that won a championship. But, yeah, they only got close again when they had an incredible BMW engine a few years later. So... 
let's try and dig a bit more into why this happened, how this all happened. Over the years, all sorts of theories have flown around and Damon has voiced a few different ideas and what he thinks went on. Before we get to some of those, let's go with the story that is most commonly told. And it involves Hill's manager slash lawyer, Michael Breen, asking Williams for too much money. Patrick Head has told this story a few times, most notably in Maurice Hamilton's superb book about the story of Williams and again on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast. In the Williams book, Patrick said that sending in Breen to do the negotiating was where Damon went wrong and he called Breen an awful non-charismatic fellow. Patrick added, Breen went into Frank's office and didn't quite put his feet up on the desk, but he put his briefcase on Frank's desk, opened it up, leant back and said something along the lines of, we're opening negotiations at $15 million, Frank. So if you want to start bidding for Damon next year, that's where it starts. Patrick said he's been told uh, Frank left a long silence that went on for longer than two minutes. Then he said, Michael, when you come back with a sensible number and proposal, I shall be very willing to talk to you. Meanwhile, there's the door. I would be very grateful if you take your briefcase off my desk and depart my office. Head suggested that Hill would have got a better deal if he'd come in to negotiate with Williams himself rather than sending what Patrick then called a charmless lackey. Now, let's hear from another insider on this story. Jim Wright is a columnist for the race and was very close to Frank Williams during his time there running the commercial side of the team. So let's get Jim's perspective on what happened, plus some insight on what Hill's manager came back with after Frank told him to go away and come back with a sensible proposal. Damon was being represented by Michael Breen and I don't think Michael had operated at that level before or, or with, with someone like Frank Williams. And he just misjudged the situation. Um, and obviously, he hadn't done his homework very properly. You know, Frank and Patrick were renowned for not paying over odds for, for drivers. And, you know, history had shown, and even recent history with Mansell, that if you tried to play too strong a hand, it, it would backfire on you. And I think it was just misjudged um, by, by Damon, and in particular by his representative. And, and I do recall that Frank gave another chance um, and, and said, look, we're, we're miles apart. We're not even close. I urge you to think about it for 48 hours and come back. And when they came back, they dropped the money a little bit, but they wanted sponsorship areas on the car, uh, his race suit on his helmet, etc., and that just never works. You know, you can't have two people out, two two groups of people out selling the same inventory. So it, it was this is going nowhere. There wasn't emotion attached to it. There never would be with with Frank. It was just this is what we think you're worth. We're prepared to pay more than we did in the past, but that's the value. And, and if you think you have a, a can attract a value higher than that, good luck to you. Hill called the talk of him asking for too much money typical and most obvious, but he said it wasn't true. He said he never got to the point of discussing money with Frank and he, uh, he would have happily accepted the same deal he was on for 1996 with a championship bonus included. Ed, 
Damon said he left negotiations to Breen so he could focus on driving. Was that a mistake? Well, I think from the perspective of the impact that it had on his future, you'd have to say yes, because it could have changed what happened. But also, we could never know how that impacted his driving. We might be in an alternative world having a discussion of, well, perhaps Hill shouldn't have been so involved in his negotiations because then he'd have driven better. Uh, So you can never be completely sure about that. I have a sneaking suspicion that the outcome was always going to go in this direction because of, as we talked about before, Williams were already already quite leaning towards getting rid of, of Damon Hill. I almost feel like Hill's form in 96 just became this problem for them in a, in a funny kind of way because they then they, they sort of mentally committed to it and then they couldn't do it. Then they wanted to have their cake and eat it and not destabilise him by not telling him. So it was all a, a bit of a mess. I suspect that it might have changed things a tiny bit if Hill had been doing it direct. But at the same time, Hill would have still seen himself as worth a world champion's paycheck because he was on his way to being world champion and potentially the outcome would have been very very similar and I think it was probably quite a nice story to have out there from the Williams perspective that it was down to money and poor negotiation because it almost absolves them of their involvement in the whole thing. I'm going to disagree here because I I think that if Damon was sitting there in front of Frank to negotiate the deal himself they they would have arrived at a number that worked you know obviously Damon was signed you know, as a test driver on a, on on probably, you know, relatively low money compared to the Prost and Senna's and Schumacher's and Mansell's of that era. Um, and so unquestionably, he, he, you know, would have wanted more given the status of a world champion. But from everything I've heard from people who were around Williams at that time, that entire process would have gone a lot better for Damon if he was doing it directly rather than through Michael Breen. But were they already seduced by the allure of the alternative? That's, I guess, the, the main yeah. question. I, I'd certainly agree. You're right. I'm sure it would have gone better and it would have been less less disastrous if Damon had done it. But I, I do wonder if the the uh, the outcome was preordained. Yeah, I think so. I, I think they, they would... I think, from what I understand, there was a pre-contract with Frenson in 95 rather than a, a hard and signed, sealed, delivered deal. Uh, that contract, I believe, only got signed in the summer of, of 96 somewhere, but there was a sort of pre-agreement. Um, and, and I think, therefore, in that first half of the year, you know, let's say we've got to, let's pick a race, let's say Magni Corps, right? You know, Damon's just won for the sixth time that season. He's on a roll, leading the World Championship. If he'd gone down to Frank and said, look, let's just thrash out a deal. I'd like security. I'd like to get a deal done. Um you know, I get I had a pretty crappy 1995, but I've done all, made all these changes in my life, and this is why I've improved and I'm fitter and stronger, and this is why I'm the person for you for the future. I, I think he could have still swayed the conversation. Uh, in in my experience, team bosses, particularly the older school ones, don't like managers. They they really don't. You know, they want to hear from the drivers directly, and and I, I think that makes a, a big difference because. Uh, also, you can sell yourself better um, and so- somebody else who, let's be honest, is going to earn a large amount of cash out of you as a commission is going to have a different way of trying to sell it. They're going to do a much harder sell, which on the receiving end, someone like Frank Williams or Ron Dennis uh, or Eddie Jordan aren't going to be particularly friendly to us. So I, th- I think Damon, yeah, I, I think Damon could have 
swung it, uh, swung it around still if he'd gone in there by himself. People who are close to Frank Williams have often said that you know he was he was almost in awe of his drivers and and he could be putty in their hands. There's there's, there's stories uh, we may have even talked about them on the show. People like Ricardo Patrese, you know, being on the verge of losing his drive, going and having a chat with Frank, charming him, and coming out with a two million dollar pay rise and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I I, I think definitely. Damon should have been able to do it himself. It's a good question that Ed raises. You know, did Hill, was Hill's mental reset so dependent on not letting any distractions in? But all that does is make me think that if Hill would allow this distraction in, Jack Villeneuve could have won the championship. So it definitely should have done that, Damon. Yeah, there's a there's a line in that, that article I talked about before um, where, you know, Damon actually says to, to, to Andrew Benson at the, in, in 2008, he says... I wasn't very good at this business side of things. Uh, but he he was talking in that case about 1994. You know, he, he'd just come off the back of the, the Japanese GP win and had this really awkward conversation with um, with Frank about, um, you know, wanting more money. And then he decided mistakenly to mention it to Murray Walker and got out in the press and all this sort of stuff, which became a mess on the rundown to the season finale in Adelaide. And off the back of that, he acknowledged that, you know, the, the business side of it is not something that he enjoyed or thought he was very good at. And maybe that's what I mean. So coming back to your point here, maybe that experience from 94 put it in his head that, hang on, I've just got to focus on my driving and take a hands-off approach to the, the negotiation side. Yeah, it does make some sense. I think I think we might have talked about that in, in Series 1. That might be the time that Barry Sheen got in his ear and sort of, exactly yeah <laughs> okay so we've already heard a lot about michael breen's role in all of this so let's get into his version of events because in late 1996 breen gave his side of the story to journalist tim collings and that run ran in autosport magazine breen said he had a good relationship with frank williams and that frank always joked that breen and hill gave him a hard time in every negotiation because frank really enjoyed the mental gymnastics of dealing with breen breen said that the talk over a deal for 1997 was conducted in exactly the same way as the 1996 deal had been and he said that was a very successful deal he then put forward what he felt had gone on. He said, It is my belief that the negotiations were a sham in that I believe Williams had signed a binding contract, not an option, with Heinz Harold Frentzen for 1997. So irrespective of how much or how little I asked for, or if Damon won or lost every race, there was never a deal to be done. I wonder whether Frank realised he had made a mistake and in an effort to retain Damon, was trying to extricate himself from his contract with Frentzen for 1997, so therefore he had to try and keep the negotiations with Damon running. Hill said something very similar in his 1996 book, adding, I suspect that our negotiations with Frank were a sham, and that he never had any intention of carrying them through properly. Two brief meetings simply did not constitute a proper negotiation between us. There's a lot of logic to the theory that Frentzen was already signed, especially given Adrian Newey's account of his conversation with Patrick Head. Uh, so we put the possibility to Jim Wright, and this is what Jim told us. No, that's that's, that's not the case. There was an option um, which Frank had. Um, I'm trying to remember, the Frentzen's manager was uh, Altwin Podlek, wasn't it? Yeah. 
And Orton was a very correct guy, um, and, and certainly there was an option, but there wasn't a, a secure seat. But Orton, you know, was was gambling because you know to go to Williams from Sauber would have been a, a, a jump up, um, and you know he could always fall back to another big grid position. So there, there wasn't much of a risk from his side. But no, it's it's not true to say. He was signed with a 100% secure seat. No. And and the view was, well, uh, yeah, we like Damon. He's done a good job for us. But um, there are other people that could do a similar, if not better, job um, at a, a reasonable price. And that, that was the feeling. You know, if, if, if the driver wanted to try and negotiate above what Williams would be being prepared to pay, then do you know what? Next in line, your next taxi on the road. So, Karun, if we assume, as you mentioned earlier, that the Frentzen deal was just an option, should there have been more desire on Williams's side to make this deal work with Hill, given how much better he was performing in 1996? Yeah, I guess so. But I think that there are certain times where, you know, Frank got a bee in his bonnet about a certain driver, and this was this is one of them. And he... he you know, sort of got it in his head that Frensen was going to be the answer for the future and he couldn't get himself to look beyond what had happened in particularly the second half of 1995 with Damon, I think. So, um, look, in hindsight, it was the wrong decision, right? You know, Frensen won one race in his time at Williams, whereas um, obviously Damon, I think in 97, Glenn, you'll disagree with this, but I think in 97, Damon would have had a, a much better run of fighting for the championship, I think, off the back of the success of 96. No, I agree with that, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but I, I think they just, you know, Frank in particular, and I, I do believe this was a, a Frank thing rather than a Frank and Patrick thing. Frank in particular had got to be in his bonnet about Frenson being, um, you know, the, the next Michael Schumacher and potentially better than yeah, I think that's very much at the heart of all this, regardless about the whole contractual landscape, whether he was signed, not signed, whether it was an option, etc. The fact that he was seen as the next big thing and that just become almost this article of faith for, for Frank Williams, I think played such a big part in this. And I know we'll come back to Frenson's performances later, but that's a really, really powerful force in the background of, of all these goings on. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favourite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Now, by the time Hill released his autobiography in 2016, he had a new theory on what was behind the Frentzen deal. He said he suspected it had more to do with engines than his form, given that Williams would join forces with BMW from 2000, even though by then Frentzen had been cast aside and Ralph Schumacher was flying a German flag for BMW. Hill also reckons that Michael Schumacher's success in the 1990s had awoken German companies to the marketing potential of F1, so signing Frentzen would open up more commercial opportunities for Williams as well. 
Let's hear for the first time this episode from Jonathan Williams. As many of our listeners will know, Jonathan is Frank Williams' son and has been a regular on the show. So he and I talked about all things to do with this. And this is what Jonathan said about Hill's BMW theory and also an ace that Frentzen had up his sleeve. I know that one advantage that Heinz Harold had was that, uh, and perhaps with respect to the to the person involved that Damon did not have, was that my father actually had a very strong relationship with a gentleman called Ortwin, and I his I can't pronounce the surname properly, Podlet, who was Heinz Harold's manager, but had also managed Keki Rosberg and Thierry Bootson through their times at Williams. So that was a situation that that was an advantage that Heinz Harold had and that dad dad enjoyed a very strong and close relationship with Ortwin is my belief, which he did not have uh, with, with a gentleman representing Damon, maybe, maybe somewhat the opposite. It's sort of fair to say, uh, but again, I don't want to dis- disrespect people. I'm just saying sort of what my view of the situation was and, I was told that some sometime in 1994 was when the first BMW delegation visited Williams, which then was Didcot. So if you actually think about how much discussion there must have been to get all of that signed, sealed and delivered by September of 1997, I think it's highly likely that it would have trailed back well into the, into the time frame that we're talking about, which is the probably a decision that had its roots or had its feet rather in both the 95 and 96 Formula One seasons, which was uh, my father and Patrick and Williams deciding the the situation of their driver lineups going forward. So quite quite possibly, yes, I, I would certainly say the BMW thing would have been very, very much in the air when all of this is going on. If you put a gun to my head and said, pick a side on this one, I would probably say that it did have an influence more more than it didn't. I would say I would say I would not disbelieve this. I would not dispute that theory. Ed, Jonathan wasn't definitive there, but he, he can certainly see Damon's logic. Do you think Frank Williams's driver decisions for 1997 would or should really be influenced by what BMW might like by the time 2000 rolls around? I can see it being considered a subsidiary benefit, but I don't think it's the kind of first order thing. I think this comes back to how good they thought Frentzen was. But when you're looking at these options and Frentzen had been on the radar for a long time, I can absolutely see you think, actually, that's another big pro in the pro column, having a a German driver. I don't think it was, oh, we need to look around for a German driver for this scenario that might play out many years down the line. So influence, maybe yes, but yeah, not not the prime mover. I, I think with Frentzen, the number one thing was that he was seen as this next big thing. And this wasn't the first time that Frentzen had been in the mix for a Williams drive. When all the rumours broke out over that summer, his manager said they had been very close to a deal for 1996, but they failed. And Williams had also approached Frentzen at the beginning of his F1 career in 1994 as a potential replacement following Ayrton Senna's death. Frentzen said in an exclusive interview with Autosport in 1996 that he turned down the 94 approach out of loyalty to Sauber, which had just given him his F1 chance and had just been rocked by Carl Wendlinger's crash in Monaco that left Frentzen's teammate in a coma. 
Frentzen said, I didn't want to disappoint Peter Sauber. When I had my first offer from Frank, uh, I said I couldn't do it because it was not possible to make the decision with a clear conscience. Some people think I'm stupid, but I don't regret it. So as we've tried to get into here, why was Frentzen such a key figure on F1 and Williams's F1 driver radar over and over again, it seems? We'll hear from Jonathan Williams again as he can reveal the role Ayrton Senna played in influencing Frank Williams's view of Frentzen. So if we go to Ayrton's first race weekend in a Williams, the 1994 Brazilian Grand Prix at Interlagos, in one of the practice sessions, and of course Heinz Harrell was making his debut that weekend in the Sauber, Ayrton came in, and I don't know whether he said this over the radio while sitting in the garage or whether he made a comment after the chequered flag at the back of the garage or out of the car, but he said, who's the new guy in the Sauber? And somebody said, it's Heinzard Frentzen. He said, I followed him for quite a few laps. He looks very good. It was a comment along those lines. And that that very much lodged with my father. That is a, so that's a key. That, I mean, it was just, it was probably a conversation that lasted one or two minutes and that was a very, very influential nugget that I think was sort of can't be underestimated in in all of this. The other sort of thing that was always airborne back in those days was that uh, was a lot of people who either were or claimed to be insightful to the uh, to the Sauber Mercedes Group C program, where Michael Heinz Harold. And Carl Venlinger, and I think a fourth driver occasionally called Fritz Kreuterpointer, which is a great name, but uh, but uh, we're sort of put all, all sort of like teaming up with Jochen Mass in the second of the uh, Sauber Mercedes in the latter days of Group C in the very early nineties. There were there were quite a few people who held who sort of who sort of flagged the theory that Frentzen was the quicker of those three or four drivers. And I think a lot of and I think that interested a lot of people. And I'm sure it was and I'm sure that my father wasn't immune to that or 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 or, or not paying attention to that when Michael began sort of performing the way he did almost right from right from his first steps in, in a Grand Prix car. And I think by the time you came out of the end of 92, you were in no doubt at all that the next sort of superstar was had arrived i think you kind of knew that okay ed so this is williams basically getting frentzen almost at the third attempt ignoring how the partnership turned out do you think that up to this point in 96 had frentzen's early f1 career warranted this much attention from the best team on the grid well there's two parts to this one part is what he did in the Sauber, and the other part is, as Jonathan Williams mentioned, the, the the mythos surrounding him as the guy who was quicker than Schumacher. And we have to kind of factor in that second point because I think it informs very much how what he did at Sauber was interpreted. And if you look at that Mercedes junior team story, this thing that Frentzen was the quicker driver, that was absolutely true initially. Frentzen was initially the quicker driver. Now, this goes all the way back to late 1989 when they started doing the tests with the Mercedes junior team drivers. And Frentzen was a guy who jumped in the car, wrung its neck, got good pace out of it. Schumacher didn't actually make a brilliant impression. He had an incident with Joe Winkelhock, had a, a moment with the gravel and didn't make a brilliant impression. I think he was slowest in that first test. 
but it's almost like the whole perception just ossified based on those early tests. Now, it was difficult to make comparisons because of the the nature of the Mercedes junior team. There weren't direct comparisons to be made because of the kind of fluctuating driver lineup. But Frentzen had speed, but Schumacher had everything else, and that brought speed as well. Schumacher had this relentless self-improvement. And if you ask anyone involved, and these people have been asked in that Mercedes project, by the end of 1990, no one was in any doubt that Schumacher was the better and the quicker driver because he just evolved so much more than, than Frentzen did. And this was the great strength of Schumacher. He just kept getting better and better and better, left no stone unturned. If you were to list Schumacher's characteristics, actually item one isn't that he's stunningly fast. It's it's about the whole suite of everything. Yeah, he's quick. But I think that kind of that kind of isolates where this myth came from. And it, it was like just locked in this late 1989, early 1990 perception that didn't factor in to other things. So that meant that Frenson had this reputation when he came into uh, to F1. And that reputation was further amplified, as Jonathan alluded to, by Senna being positive about Frenson. So that meant that in the Sauber, all he really needed to do to amplify and solidify that reputation was do a good job, which he absolutely did do. He was fifth on the grid for his first Grand Prix. Look at the auto course top 10 drivers. He was 10th in 94 and 96, third in 95, and 95 was the critical season because that was the year that Hill was struggling and he was really strong in, in 95. But if you have a look at, say, 96, the first time he really had a, a proper teammate, by which I mean the previous two seasons were disrupted with a slightly rotating cast because of Venlinger's injuries and the fact that he didn't recover as well as, as hoped. So he had Herbert alongside him. Yeah, he outqualified him over the season, but Herbert got closer later on. And he didn't have anything like the margin over Herbert that Schumacher did uh, at Benetton. And Sauber struggled a bit in 96, understeery car, engine power, etc., etc. But he still put in some good performances. So he was being the star driver at Sauber over those over those years in the sixth or seventh best team. But it wasn't really showcasing his weaknesses and there were consistency question marks, uh, etc. But because he was regularly having these moments some excellent qualifying performances, some really good results. That was all it really needed to, to add to this he's the next big thing legend to to mean that he was seen as that. Frenson did do very, very well at Sauber and he's certainly someone who you'd have a look at. But I do think there was overexcitement, a bit more of a granular analysis of, of this, I think, on Frank Williams's part would have revealed that he perhaps wasn't the driver that they thought he was. And I think that's underscored by just how quickly the Williams perception of Frentzen turned once he started driving their cars. It didn't take long before they thought, actually, we've got a perfectly good driver here, but not a genius driver. He's someone with limitations. And I think that's that's why from that high peak, the relationship disintegrated almost quite so quickly. Because even early in 97, there's quite negative comments being made by the team about Frentzen. So he was doing well in F1's midfield in Sauber, but he wasn't this sort of relentless superstar material. And Williams probably could have seen that if they'd looked and seen that this was a driver who, yeah, had pace, but perhaps not the whole package and certainly wasn't the next Schumacher. Yeah, we'll save Williams's first impressions of Frentzen for the Imola 97 episode later in this series. Once Frank Williams had told Hill over the phone after the Belgian Grand Prix that he was losing his drive, ahead of the next race in Italy, Williams confirmed publicly Hill was out. There was initially a two-sentence quote from Frank in the announcement that said very little, but he was a little more forthcoming when Frentzen was subsequently announced as Hill's replacement. Frank said Hill's record spoke for itself and that Damon would be missed by everyone at the factory. 
It didn't speak that well for itself, did it? Because it didn't get him another contract. Uh, Hill kept his head down during this time, although Breen spoke to the media saying uh, there had been no hint whatsoever that this was coming. And Williams had given the impression at all times that it was extremely keen to keep Damon. Breen also said that in late 1995, Frank had told Damon, if you win the world championship, you know I've already lost enough world champions in the past that I would never, ever do it again. Hill said in his 1996 book that he'd had a similar conversation in February when, in Damon's words, Frank emphatically pressed on us that he had already lost three world champions and he wasn't going to make the same mistake again. He didn't like all the criticism he'd had to take from sponsors and from Renault. We accepted his word. So, Corinne, I think you hinted at this earlier in the episode, but let's get into it now. Does it reflect badly on Williams at all that four of its champions... P.K. Mansell, Prost and Hill all left immediately after winning the world title. We hardly, for all the championships they won, we hardly ever saw a number one on a Williams. I don't know if it reflects badly on Williams or it's just a reflection in the way that they didn't revere drivers as being, um, you know, the, the, the thing that they had to have to achieve uh, the World Championship success. You know, I think they they very much were a team that believed in um, having very good drivers and obviously top line drivers. But I think they they were always a team and a company that believed that if you focus on engineering and build the fastest cars, then the good drivers will come to us and and we can you know we'll build the fastest car and we'll win the World Championships. Um, and and you know, okay, obviously when PK left. He went with the Honda engine, so 88 wasn't great. But if you look at when Nigel left in 92, they still won in 93 with Prost. They arguably would have won in 94 with Senna, if you look at the improvements made to that car and uh, uh, where Prost left. And then when Damon left in 96, they still won in 97. So <laughs> I, I guess there's, um, there's some merit in, in that rationale. Um, so I, I don't know if it reflects badly on, on Williams as such, but I think it does, it, it does underline a philosophy that they didn't believe that the drivers were the be-all and end-all and they just thought, this is what we're going to pay them. And, and I think it reflects that more than anything else, is that they had a number which they were willing to pay drivers and that was it. There's also this thing that Alan Jones was the the Williams driver everyone was measured against, and it's still in the mid '90s. They were occasionally talking about what Alan Jones did, kind of 15 years earlier. And of course, he was the first great Williams driver. The irony is Jones was a driver who was almost signed by default because they didn't have that many options for <laughs> when they brought him in. But there was always this, yeah, this mythical standard that drivers were being compared to and not actually able to meet which again feeds into that desire to always try and get the next big thing as well so it's it's a curious psychology in that team so I think it's a blend of that the the car's the star and that oh you're not Alan Jones or you're not quite the the next big thing going on here but I think in the in Damon's case in specific that we're talking about here I don't think they ever regarded him as a Prost, Senna or a Mansell and, and I think that was the problem there and and you know in hindsight they should have probably given him more credit right you know i think they um when you look at what he could have and should have done in 97 in the williams i think he would have walked that championship so yeah i, I think um a broad reflection probably if you look at uh, if you talk to patrick today 
he would probably say that. You know, that they'd never thought of Damon as that um, A-plus list that uh, they'd had through the door just, just before them. Well, he was signed as a number two, wasn't he? And he confounded them by having actually a bit of what Schumacher had, that constant self-improvement. I think that was the characteristic that allowed Hill to excel in this period. He's almost seen as a guy who was in the right place at the right time through luck. But I think there was a lot more to Damon Hill than that. And almost that created the problem that, that Williams had in the, a bit like Mansell had earlier when PK came in, they suddenly realised Mansell was actually a lot better than what they had. And I think that was probably the same with, with Hill, certainly with the way he performed in 96. Yeah, we'll brush past any suggestion there that Hill would have walked the 97 championship. Uh, but Damon arrived in Monza and had to face up to what he later described as an agitated press, wanting to know what had gone wrong with Williams. In Damon's 96 book, he described his first press conference of the weekend as gruelling. And there, there is footage of this in a Clive James documentary about Damon that ran early in 97. And it it's a tough watch. There's a camera zoomed right in on Damon's face while the media are asking him to basically explain why Frank Williams doesn't want him anymore. And okay, it's probably a hot day. He's under a tent or something in the paddock, but you can see more and more beads of sweat rolling down his face as he's having to go through this. And you just, you can't feel anything but sympathy for him. During that press conference, Hill said he was disappointed because he turned himself around over the winter after the difficult 95 season. He added, my view is always that the reward for winning races is simply the opportunity to continue to drive the best equipment. Frentzen faced far less media attention that weekend, just saying that he'd spoken to Frank Williams often. And Frank had then told him, I want you to beat Schumacher and Ferrari in 1997. That's why I'm signing you up. Ed, I think we all assumed Ferrari would be stronger in 97, Schumacher's second season there. But did... This is kind of a two-part question. Did Damon deserve another shot at taking on Schumacher? Or can you perhaps see that maybe Williams were worried that if Michael was fast again, Damon might crumble? Deserve is always one of those tricky words, isn't it? Fundamentally, anyone who wins a world championship probably does deserve to have control of their own destiny in terms of whether they defend the title in the, in the same team. But sometimes reality is a bit more complicated than that. And you could say that ultimately Hill partly had himself to blame because of the the shortcomings in 1995, because if he'd done better in 95, this situation might not have arisen. It might still have happened. 97 would have been uh, very interesting. I suspect probably Williams had reservations, but I think the fact that Hill had had the championship success in 96 would have made him much less prone to that. The one caveat is I suspect Williams, in a way, almost lucked into a better setup for 97, simply because Villeneuve was the clear team leader. Assuming the 96 pattern continued, at best it would have been kind of joint leadership with Hill in, in 97, and they might have taken points off each other and allow Schumacher to, to have, have won that title. But That's my theory. It's, it's absolutely plausible. I certainly don't think Hill would have crumbled. But yeah, that whole thing about deserving... If you don't do absolutely everything you possibly could have done over the full range of your time with a the team, then you can say you open the door to it. But that that is quite a harsh uh, reflection of the thing. But certainly, yeah, you deserve to have the shot to, to have a go at defending the title. And it would be really interesting to see how it happened. You never know. He might have taken another step, won the World Championship, at ease with himself, confident, mental demons cast aside, and he just cruises it. Who knows? Talking of Schumacher, he was asked over the Monza weekend 
for his thoughts on what had happened. And he said, everyone, including me, asks, how good is Damon? Is it him or is it the car that wins the race? By going to another team, we will see what Damon really is. He said it was an opportunity for Hill to prove that he is better than some people might think. And he tipped Damon to surprise people. However, when Michael was asked who he would fear more in a Williams out of Hill and Frentzen, he said he shouldn't answer that because it would be good for Heinz Harold, but not so good for Damon. So I think we can take from that that he did answer it. Uh, Karun, was a line like that perhaps a little below the belt from Schumacher? Yeah, but I mean, we have to keep in mind this was peak Hill versus Schumacher pantomime stuff, wasn't it? This this era. Um you know, the, the scars from Adelaide 94 were still very, very raw. And I, th- I think, uh, was it surprising? Probably not. You know, there was a lot of this going on in that uh, in that phase of mudslinging, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all good fun, really. Uh, speculation quickly turned to where Hill could go next. And one of the first rumours to surface was that Renault were keen for him to go to Benetton. So the number one would still be on a Renault powered car. Benetton boss Flavio Briatore shut that down very quickly, saying it makes no sense for Benetton to have Damon. There are not many possibilities for him. I see no better pairing for 1997 than Gerhard Berger and Jean Alesi. They are quick and work well together and with the team. The priority for Benetton is not the drivers, it's improving the chassis. Ed, we're going to ask you to create an alternate reality here. Hill to Benetton for 1997 and crucially Damon Hill driving for Flavio Briatore could that have worked yeah I think Briatore is a little bit dismissive of it there actually it could have worked very well for him particularly with the way that team was working because that mile seven sponsorship they had was very very much results incentivized I think they needed to get wins which obviously they were struggling to do with Alacy and Berger I think it would have stood or fallen based upon how well it started because I could see if it didn't start well Briatore would have started getting agitated and it would have all sort of fallen apart but they'd have had a driver in Hill who was at the peak of his powers very good technical driver probably could have grabbed control of the development of that car to get it working for him Alacian Berger weren't exactly having the best of times with Benetton in in that period and I think certainly Alacy struggled to kind of move with the times in F1 that, that Schumacher was bringing in whereas that was a skill that I think Hill did have so I actually think that could have done reasonably well that said, I don't think they'd have suddenly been winning the championship or or anything. So clearly, Briatore wanted control of the drivers. That seems to be a, an obvious thing. Wouldn't want Renault's interference uh, making that making that happen with Hill and wanting to have Hill just to get the number one is a slightly odd motivating factor. You should decide your drivers based on who you think is the best driver. So I think that's one of those interesting what-ifs that actually would have gone either way, and I suspect it would have depended on how the first four or five races went. I don't think it would have worked. I think Flavio would have been way too ruthless for, for Damon. You know, He's talked about how he preferred perhaps a little bit of a, a father figure or an arm around the shoulder from a team boss. You're not getting that from Flavio Briatore. Um, Jordan appeared to be the front runner for Hill in the press and Eddie Jordan said at the time he would be delighted to sign him but he also said he couldn't let personal opinion interfere with the business of running a company. That seemed to be a suggestion that Jordan couldn't afford Hill and Eddie said in his book that even before Jordan signed Damon for 1998 he didn't think they could afford it and that he would rather any money that was set aside by the sponsors to sign Hill would be better spent on the team itself. Hill 
has never really mentioned the prospect of Jordan for 1997, either in his book or when he talks about late 96 and his options on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast. But that might just be because it slipped his mind, given he went there a year later. Senior figures at Jordan said at the time that there were discussions, and even their new signing, Ralph Schumacher, said he wanted Hill as a teammate, despite the rivalry between Damon and Michael Schumacher. Ralph simply said, if Michael has a problem with a man, why should I? So, Karun, let's look at this one. Jordan had a great car in 97. How exciting would the prospect of Hill driving that 197 have been? Well, he would have won in Argentina. He would have probably had a pretty good chance of winning at Spa because he was always good around there. Um, Hockenheim, maybe? Hockenheim, yeah. Fisichella got second there, didn't he? Although uh, it is a power power race. But, yeah, I, I, listen, they would have had a better year than they than they had, I think, at that stage with uh, with a pair of rookies. Gary Anderson's always said that with a more established, experienced driver, that chassis would have been able to win races. He said that if Rubens had stayed on, Rubens Barrichello, that should have happened. And I imagine Hill would have worked very, very well with that car. That would have been a good time to, to go to Jordan. The next team to throw its hat into the ring was F1 newcomer Stuart Grand Prix, which would join the grid for 1997. Jackie Stewart had, of course, known Hill's dad, Graham, very well, and he said it would be a dream come true to sign Damon. Jackie said he knew it was a long shot, but he highlighted the team's five-year works Ford engine deal and the chance for Hill to play a role in the formative stages of the team as strong selling points. Hill has spoken several times about how painful it was to turn Stewart down. In 2021, he said... Jackie made him a very good offer and it broke Hill's heart to say no, but he felt the risk of joining a brand new team was too big. During his F1 Beyond the Grid interview, Damon added, I couldn't see how they could get off the ground and be competitive from scratch. Now, Karun, normally I ask you all on this show to ignore the benefits of hindsight when answering these questions. But in this case, let's take advantage of hindsight would Stewart have been a better bet than Arrows for Hill in 1997? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but, but I also understand why Damon didn't want to take that chance, right? To go as reigning world champion to a brand new team, you know, didn't really work out for Jacques a couple of years later on, although very, very different sort of teams. You have to say that, you know, actually, when you look back, Glenn, over the last, let's say, 30, 35 years, if you look at the two new teams that arrived into F1 as complete startups, you know, not like a Mercedes acquiring Tyrrell sort of deal, but complete startups, you'd have to say that Jordan and Stewart were the only two that were truly successful startups, weren't they? I can't think of another one. I mean, Ed, you're an expert on, on this sort of stuff. Ed's going to say Sauber. Well, I was going to say Sauber, but more importantly, what a slight on HRT. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had a whole car ready for you just in time for qualifying at the yeah, start of the season. No, right. How can you say they weren't ready? Uh, no, you're right about Salvo, though. Uh, not right about HRT. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot about Salvo. So, yeah, that's... that's the, the, Everyone forgets about Salvo. Oh, it's fun. really unfair, isn't it? Um, but, yeah, no, if you look at it, you know, that's what... Over the last 31 years, that's the three teams who have been standout things. But no, nobody would have had a... Um, you know, a crystal ball to predict that in, in 96. Yeah, I think that's fair. So as we know, Hill ended up signing for Arrows for 1997. This was announced in late September 
uh, at a press conference in London. At the time, Hill said they were under no illusions about the size of the task ahead, but he was left in no doubt that the package and facilities that Tom Walkinshaw was putting in place at Arrows were the beginnings of a winning team. He said Arrows offered him a rewarding package, which he later revealed was more than he was on at Williams. And at the time, he said Arrows gave him the opportunity to make rapid progress with a team, test, develop and to be winning races at the end of it. Of Walkinshaw, who had only taken full control of Arrows in July, Hill said everything this man touches and does becomes a winner. Walkinshaw said that he felt the technical and R&D side of the team that he was putting in place at Arrows had won Hill over. He said Arrows wanted to establish itself in the top five in F1 and that he wanted an experienced top flight driver to help mould the team into a championship contender in the future. Ed, by all means, tell us how shocked you were when this was announced, but I think that's a given. When Hill and Walkinshaw were talking up the potential of this partnership to win races and fight for championships one day, did you believe any of that? Yeah, it's funny, I can't remember the specific moment when this news broke in my reaction. I'm sure I must have been surprised, but some things... You... As a Damon Hill fan, you did not pay very close attention to one of the biggest stories of Damon's career at the time, did it's you? It's really weird. I was clearly I was clearly paying attention, but it's funny, uh, there's there's various things I can remember exactly. Normally, it's reading it on CFAX, which uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, look it up. It's too traumatic. Um, You've blocked all of this from your memory. It, it must be, or maybe I was just following it so closely that everything was kind of pigeon steps, but... I do remember thinking at the time that it had potential to work. I I don't think I was completely 100% taken in by this is going to be brilliant immediately. But yeah, and there was some positive. Obviously, there was that. Uh, Road Sport did a cover of Damon setting the pace when he tested the Bridgestones on that Ligier test car they had. So the Bridgestones could be a bit of a trump card. And actually, the Bridgestone tyres were very good uh, that year. So that was a good part of it. John Barnard, obviously, was compelling. What Damon Hill said about Tom Walkinshaw, absolutely right as well. I think at this stage we were waiting for a fully Walkinshaw-controlled F1 team, run F1 team, to to kind of break through given the success he'd had. So there was a lot that looked good and the money seemed to be pretty stable. I don't think I'd have been anticipating a brilliant season, but certainly I think being kind of decent top 10 runners, getting some big results was probably what, what I was expecting. Although... Any notion of that was destroyed by Hill's struggle to qualify in Australia in in '97. In so yeah, I, I think most of all, I just remember the sense of it wasn't even expectation; it was just uh, the recognition that this could have gone either way, and it was a huge story. You know, the world champion going to the team that had never won a Grand Prix—that was what Arrows was famous for: the most races without winning a Grand Prix. So. It was a, almost a unique kind of thing. I guess we got something similar a few years later with Villeneuve, okay, one year out from uh, winning the championship rather than straight on going to BAR. But yeah, on paper, there was a lot there. I think in hindsight, if this was to happen now, I'd have a bit more cynicism, a little bit more uh, world-weary and, uh, and understanding how these things work. But if you look at the list of ingredients for Arrows, actually pretty good but it's clear they needed success a little bit too quickly for that to be sustained I think that was the fundamental problem there they also needed a different engine really didn't they I mean <laughs> yeah that was that was the obvious weakness the Yamaha engine yeah, I should have mentioned that yeah yeah I think that that was you're right there are lots of other ingredients which which were good and actually the, the Bridgestones turned out to be a blinder didn't it because they were they were brilliant on, on its day um, but yeah it's I don't know. I, I remember reading that 
and and then watching that first qualifying in Melbourne '97, uh, uh, just watching, finding it painful to watch, just going, oh God, I can't believe we're all sitting here cheering for the world champion to scrape his way onto the back row of the grid. It, it was it was painful to watch. Well, the amazing thing was it was it was much worse than. Than it, than it could have been because nobody was predicting struggles to qualify and driving into Shinji Nakano being the main highlights of the early stages of that season, that's for sure. Stop spoiling the Imola 97 episode, Ed. You're getting far too far ahead of yourself. Damon was uh, has been very candid on signing for Arrows. Now more time has passed. So let's revisit some of the things he said for a more honest appraisal. Uh, from his side. He said Arrows appealed more than Stewart for him because it was already established. He was impressed with the way Walkinshaw was investing in the team's facilities and he was interested in the fact that legendary designer John Barnard was going to be involved. He also said, uh, as we've mentioned, that the Bridgestone factor for Arrows was interesting, uh, although he admits overall it was a complete shot in the dark to sign for Arrows. Bernie Eccleston had pointed him in Walkinshaw's direction, which made Hill think Bernie must have realised Arrows was on reasonably solid footing. More amusingly, he said in his book that he was hung over when he went to view the team's factory. The factory visit was portrayed at the time as the thing that convinced Hill to join Arrows. But looking back years later, he said in his book, my, he my head was pounding. I kept thinking, just show me the bit of paper. I'll sign it and get the hell out of here. He also said that even though the money was good, it still felt like severance pay. But the main reason he signed for Arrows was that they were the only team offering a one-year deal when everyone else wanted at least two years. So Damon's plan was to sit tight for a year that he described as a write-off and then try to jump to McLaren to team up with Adrian Newey again. So Corinne, when you put together all of those pieces that Damon has revealed over the years... Does the Arrows decision start to make some sense? I think the one-year thing is is a very, very valid point because, you know, as, as a driver who had, you know, been first or second in the World Championship for the, the previous two, three years, actually, uh, you know, going to a, a team at the back of the grid, essentially, is, is not where he wants to be long-term. You know, he wants to find his way back into a, a top team and find a way uh, up at the front. So as much as publicly he could stand there and go, yeah, 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 we're all going to be brilliant and Tom's doing all these things and we're all going to win, deep down, clearly he viewed that as a stopgap, right, uh, as to where his next move was. So, yeah, I, I think for me, out of all the, the, the ingredients in terms of why he signed with Arrows, the fact that it was a one-year deal makes the most sense. Now, just before we finish, let's go back to the main point of this episode, which is, of course, Williams deciding in the first place to drop Hill. Williams have taken a lot of flack for this decision over the years. And when I spoke to Jonathan Williams about this, one thing I was keen to find out was if this was a decision his dad had ever expressed any regret over. So let's hear what Jonathan told us. one, two or three years ago, my father and I did discuss it. And he was very keen to point out it was no disrespect to Hightower Frentzen. He stood by the decision and the decision-making processes at the time. But he said that upon reflection and in hindsight, it it was a decision that didn't work out in terms of how it was desired, the effect it was desired to have. From a sporting point of view, it was a decision that they got wrong. 
in the position that my father and Patrick were in, they were always striving. You always have to be several steps ahead. You, if if you're running a competitive sports team, no, no matter what the sport, sometimes you have to go into this territory of making these difficult decisions and thinking, we've got somebody very, very good now, but could we do better? I think now that hindsight is reflected upon it, I know that dad certainly discussed with me that from it was just one of those decisions that didn't work out. And again, with no disrespect to Heinz Harold, but uh, I think my father did say in hindsight, we would have been better off had we have stuck with Damon. Let's have a quick final word on this one then. Frank Williams wasn't a man who spent too much time worrying about any decisions he might have got wrong and certainly didn't really worry what other people thought of what he was doing. But Ed, listening to what Jonathan told us there, is it understandable that Williams was turning its attention to life after Damon Hill at the time that they did? Yeah, I think it makes sense that they were thinking about that. Certainly Damon was getting towards the end of his career, even though obviously he'd not actually been in F1 for that long, but he was 36 in 1996. And obviously there were concerns from the past, from from 95, etc. So they wanted to be on the lookout for the next big thing, etc. So I get that. It's almost all the rest of it I don't really get. The the way they handled it, the, the way they dealt with Hill was poor. The impact it had on Adrian Newey was pretty much suicidal for the team because the loss of Newey was, as we've said, so crucial. And it wasn't like that wasn't telegraphed. that It was, it was a problem not involving him in these decisions. So it, kind of the, the root of it, fine. If you think you can get the next big thing, you can even excuse perhaps the mistake with thinking Frenson was the next big thing. If they genuinely 100% were sold on this, or certainly Frank Williams was, then I guess, yeah, you have to go for it at that point. But yeah, there's so much that they that they got wrong about the about the wider thing, and yeah, certainly they'd have been much better off waiting, should we say, and sticking with sticking with Hill because he'd have done a perfectly perfectly good job in in '97 and probably got even better as as he as he did through this this period. But yeah, a good example of a team I think shooting itself in the foot with the way it conducts itself and and does things. It's a very old school way, and I think Formula One was getting more professional in the way it was working or had been doing for many years and I think Frank Williams was operating in a slightly kind of 1970s early 1980s way. Karun do you think well firstly you you uh, spent some time with Frank Williams and the Williams family are you are you surprised or interested at all that this is something he has reflected on in private in the past and admit and held his hands up that's always something I've never really got the impression that that was Frank's style particularly. Yeah uh, I think in in you're right in terms of you, you never openly get these sort of comments, but I think, you know, privately he he recognises, right? You know, and listen, the stats don't lie. You know, you, you just need to compare uh, Frenson against Villeneuve in, in 97, 98, and he wasn't really there, was he? Um, but I think what was, I think what, what was even more more interesting is the fact that Upon reflection, and, and I think they've come up publicly quite often, haven't they? Both Frank and Patrick have talked about how much they thought Jacques made quite a meal of winning the 97 championship. And I think that's even more skewed that opinion about Frensen. You know, the fact that they think now, really, Damon would have would have done a better job of winning the 97 championship in a car that was 
uh, a brilliant, brilliant car, really, the FW19. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not completely surprised, um, you know, that in private, at least, Frank acknowledged it. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating story. We've obviously taken our time to get through it, but I think everyone would agree it was worth doing it in this way. Uh, so we will leave it there. Whenever we do a 1997 or a 96 episode, there's going to be Hill Arrows, Hill Williams related stuff that comes up. So we will touch on it again. But thank you, uh, Ed and Karun, for joining us to kick off Series 7. And a special thanks to all the insiders who were part of this story, who helped us piece together a few more bits so we could kick off the series in style. Next time, we're jumping ahead to 2001, when F1 headed to the United States in the wake of the 2001 terror attacks in New York, and Mika Hakkinen claimed the final victory of his F1 career while still pretending in public that he wasn't about to retire, he was just taking a sabbatical. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.